if I had been successful that night, my family would probably give everything they have for five days. Five hours would have been huge. And I told myself that the things we choose to believe have consequences on us and the people that we care about. And so I picked up the phone and I called my parents and I asked for help and I checked into rehab. Where within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, drug-induced bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder, as well as obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. And I was put on a cabinet's worth of medication. It was like 15 medications. And these were lifelong medications. And I was a cliche walking into treatment. I mean, just so you guys know, I used after surviving suicide. Like I used in order to leave, couldn't do life without it. So I was high when I checked into treatment and I was under the full belief that I was going to do 28 days, get a break, and then I have a handle on things. And that sitting in that doctor's office was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it became painfully obvious that if I wasn't willing to change everything about the way that I moved through the world, I wasn't guaranteed five years and it sure wouldn't be from drugs that that idea of recovery had to be completely and radically different from what I thought it was. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and this is the place where we share stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose. It sounds so glamorous, so lucky for those who have found it, but I can speak from experience when I say the road to purpose can be messy and scary, and in most cases will bring you to your knees more than once. For our guest today, Adam Sud, finding his purpose was through the brink of death. Almost losing his life in 2012 through an attempt to end his life at the hands of drug addiction, disease-provoking food choices, and the denial that he had the power to rise up and be his own solution. Thankfully, he was unsuccessful, and he is here with us today, a transformed individual on purpose in spreading awareness of living a plant-based lifestyle and coaching others to know the inherent wisdom of their bodies and the undeniable healing power of love. Adam's story is shocking, inspiring, sad, hopeful, and another notch in the well-told story that we have everything we need to conjure the courage to take charge of our life and in doing so, wake up to our innate worthiness in this world. Through Adam's transformation, he survived suicide. He lost 180 pounds, reversed diabetes, got sober, and lives today as a nutrition researcher, diabetes and health coach, and I'm going to add mindset coach in there too. (laughs) He is living the demonstration of what it means to overcome the odds. BJ and I have been looking forward to this conversation, and we are so grateful for our time on the mic with you. Adam, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for that amazing intro. That, <laughs> yeah. was, that was amazing. Thank you. I just, uh, you know, we, we've been following you for a long time and reading your Instagram posts and this whole this underlying uh, piece that you have about love is so incredibly strong, and we talk yeah. about it all the time. And and we have a team of athletes. Um, BJ is our head coach, and and he goes live with the team every week. He did it this morning, and at the end, he always says, "I love you," mm-hmm. like I love you, and um, and that has so much to do with loving himself and doing what he loves and taking those risks and finding purpose and all of that. And I just. I think that um, your story is 
such one of self-love. Yeah. Well, it's not, that's everyone's story, you know, Mm. eventually, uh, that's the hope, right? Um, you know, people will say that my story is one of disease reversal and it's one of weight loss or it's one of sobriety. And those, those are occurrences within the story, um, that, that at the root of it all, it's a, you know, it's a practice of remembering who I've always been before somebody or something got me to believe differently. Yeah. Um, and you know, it started, you know, it's really started when I was a little kid, you know, I grew up in Texas and I was born in 1982. So I was like in the greatest generation of unrestricted junk food, you know, I mean like (laughs) the breakfast cereal aisle in those days was magic. Um, but at the same, I was also, um, you know, my dad is, um, uh, was, was part of the founding of Whole Foods Market. And um, he had a very um, strong conviction around healthy eating. He also was a marathoner. And he also had lost his father to colon cancer before I was born. Um, my grandmother would, would end up uh, surviving a heart attack and cancer, and then unfortunately dying in an accident. Uh, his sister died from heart failure as a result of untreated or uncontrolled diabetes. Um, This is a man who's lost a lot of people that he really cares about as a result of not taking care of themselves, whether they knew it or not. Right. That was, that was, there was things they either knew they were doing or didn't know they weren't doing at at the end of the day, these were preventable. Um, And uh, you know, I think that it had a very profound impact on my dad. And so as a kid growing up, you know, I think that it's easier to access criticism than it is to open up. And so with all the best intentions in the world, I was criticized um, for wanting to eat these junk foods. And for, I wouldn't say it was, even as a little kid, I wasn't overweight, but I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the skinny kid on the block. And I can remember coming inside, I was about 10 years old. It was summer in Texas you know, you run around when you're 10 years old in the summer in Texas, you run around in a bathing suit everywhere you go. So I run into my parents' bedroom and my mom and my dad asked me why I already had love handles. And I'm 10 years old. First of all, never even heard the word before. So have no idea what they're talking about. Don't know how I got them. Certainly don't know how I'm supposed to get rid of them. And more so than that, right before that, I, I, feel like I was completely accepting of myself, both physically and emotionally, Mm. right? Willingly allowing myself to be without judgment. And then like that, all of a sudden there was a condition placed upon that acceptance. There was conditions upon which I was now allowed to love and accept myself completely as a physical person. And what was more terrifying than that, or more, you know, uncomfortable was the idea of, well, shoot, you know, if there's one, what are the others? Why do I not know what they are? How am I going to find this out? How am I going to solve this problem that is my body? That's when my body became my adversary. And and every single day from that point on, I was constantly hyper aware. I was looking for cues from people and things that would indicate to me what else was wrong. What was I not doing right? How did I not fit in so that I could correct the things about myself that weren't up to standards or the conditions that allowed me to be acceptable, wanted, belonging, all of the things. And we moved to Austin, Texas, right before I started high school from Houston. So I'm, I'm going to a big 
Texas football high school, not knowing a single person. Uh, I was late to start puberty, so I was an awkward freshman. I mean, freshmen are awkward anyways, but, and, I, and I was up there. Like, I was a bar setter for awkward. Um, <laughs> you, were, you were extra awkward. Yeah, I was extra awkward. <laughs> and so it, it was, you know, at the time, I had been diagnosed with ADHD, right? So in middle school, I got diagnosed with ADHD, which, let me just say, was another opportunity for somebody of authority to say, here's something else that doesn't meet the conditions of the world. However, what I find really interesting when I think back and the, the impact that this visit may have had was that this doctor offered me a solution and it was a substance outside of myself. It was Ritalin and it was here. Here's how you hide what is not acceptable to other people, which is your ADHD. Right. And so, and, and the, the ownership of that diagnosis is that this is who and what you are, not what you struggle with. Right. So starting high school, um, my prescription from Ritalin had been changed to Adderall, which is just another stimulant form of medication used to treat ADHD. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. I barely had any, actually. Um, As I mentioned, I was awkward. But as soon as people found out that I had Adderall, all of a sudden, I started to get invited to parties. People started to seem to want me around. And you know what? I loved it. I wanted to have something of value that was unique that I could offer to people that they couldn't get anywhere else because I wanted to be that person that everybody wanted around. And, you know, I can remember going to a party and the, it was very obvious. The reason I was invited was they wanted me to bring Adderall and I was fine with it. And I remember using Adderall as a recreational drug for the first time. And it was just like, like, boom, all of a sudden I was, very captivated by what this substance was doing for me. I wasn't hooked to the substance. I was hooked to what it was offering me, which was with the greatest of ease and repeatability. I was able to magically fix everything that I believed was broken about me because I was slightly overweight. As I mentioned, Adderall is amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. And that's why it works really well. And I'm not saying I don't like Adderall and I'm not saying I do like Adderall, but I'm just stating a fact here. That's what the stuff is. It's, it's a medically pure form of amphetamine that is used to treat ADHD. So it works phenomenally well uh, in, in regards to weight loss. Uh, if I take a lot of Adderall, my hunger drive is gone. My metabolism is through the roof. All of a sudden, I have unbelievable confidence. I could go up to anybody and start talking to them. And it didn't matter what they were talking about because it was immediately interesting to me, whether I cared about it or not. And I had boundless energy. I was the life of the party the entire night. And at the time, my relationship with my dad was struggling a little bit more for different reasons because I had very poor study habits. I was, a, I was an A student, but I didn't study and I didn't like to go to class. And you know, my dad is very much the opposite. You know, He's very routine-based. And if I could take enough Adderall, all of a sudden I appear to be the student that makes my dad proud. And so my, my relationship with my dad is getting, feeling better. My, I'm ha- making friends. I'm making girlfriends. I'm losing weight. I'm, I'm having fun. It's, all of a sudden, it seemed to magically fix everything that was a struggle. And it worked. It worked for me in high school. I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. Uh, and then things took a turn. Because as with any substance that you use, You start to develop a dependency to it. You start to develop a tolerance to it. And more became not enough. Not enough became a constant and repeating 
concern in my day and in my life. You know, how much do I have left? How long will it last? Where will I get more? How much will it cost? Where am I going to get the money to pay for it? And I ended up dropping out of college, moving back to Austin, and falling into a life of criminal drug addict, um, where I was buying and selling drugs on the street. I was stealing from people. Um, things got really bad. Um, I would treat my family like absolute garbage. I mean, I was only using them for money or to blame them and shame them for everything that was going wrong in my life. And I ended up became, becoming very isolated and developed a secondary dependency to fast food, where I would eat about 5,000 calories of fast food a day on the days that I couldn't get uh, Adderall. And so to put it into perspective, I would get up every single day when I'd go to Torchy's Tacos, a taco place in Texas, and I would get four potato, egg, and cheese breakfast tacos. Then i go to Whataburger, get the extra large honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal, then go to McDonald's, get two supersized double quarter pounder meals and for dinner, an extra large pizza from Papa John's. Then at three in the morning, go back to Whataburger for three of their breakfast on a bun sandwiches with sausage. And I drink about 20 sodas a day. And when I say I was struggling with substances, the average prescription for an individual using Adderall is about 10 milligrams for every 24 hours. I was using a minimum of 450 milligrams per day, upwards of 1,000 milligrams. And I would do that for six days straight. I wouldn't sleep, I wouldn't eat, and I would end up on day four, day five, in the beginning stages of a drug-induced psychosis where I'd be hallucinating, I'd be seeing and hearing things that weren't happening. And in order to get myself out of it, I would pop opiates so that I could make myself fall asleep, You know, wait till I get more, and then that period where I couldn't get any, use food, and then to start the whole cycle over again. And my weight reached about 300 pounds at that point. And it was at this time that my dad came to me and he offered me an opportunity to attend a seven-day retreat hosted by a man named Rip Esselstyn. Now, this was about 2010. And I'm going to tell you right now, I had no idea who Rip Esselstyn was. I didn't care who he was. I didn't know anything about a plant-based diet. I sure shit didn't want to know anything about it. All I did know was that if I said yes to my dad, I could get him to keep giving me money. That's the only reason why I went. And I went high. I mean, I had drugs on me. I was an absolute mess. I was very diaphoretic where I was flush red all the time. I'd sweat through about two shirts a day. And in fact, my appearance and my behavior at times was so disruptive that there, were con- there was consideration about whether I should be kicked out of the program. And I'm really glad that I wasn't because when I was there, I learned and I heard all the, uh, all of the the information and the knowledge about a plant-based lifestyle. I learned how you could, if I wanted to take charge of my health and my life. Um, and I wish I could tell everybody listening that that was all I needed, right? Boom. Seven days with the Esselstons and Jeff Novick and, you know, Doug Lyle and all these people. And, and then all of a sudden that's it. And the story fixed my life. And, you know, that's just not the way it was. That's not the way it, it happened. Um, in fact, things got a lot worse. I was, to put it plainly, I simply was not ready to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be. Until about 2012, I'd reached about 350 pounds. Um, I was self-harming. I would beat myself in front of the mirror. Um and I would do it because I had a goal. And that goal was if I could just hate myself enough, and if I could just hate my life enough, 
maybe then I would actually want to change my life, right? If I could just make myself so damn miserable that I hated being alive enough, maybe change would be something I would consider. And the problem is it just made me feel more disconnected from the meaningful bonds in my life that give me the experience of being alive in a meaningful way. It made me feel further from the potential of change. And, you know, I had been battling with suicidal thoughts for uh, six months, maybe a year at that point, but I hadn't, I didn't have a plan or anything like that. It wasn't something I was, had written out and I was 30 years old. I already had erectile dysfunction. I had infected mosquito bites that weren't healing on my legs for reasons I didn't understand at the time. And life just hurt physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every sense of the word, being alive was pain. And I just said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. You know, I, can't, I can't get up every single day and have it feel like the worst it's ever been and know with complete certainty tomorrow is going to be worse. I couldn't do that anymore. And so I, I grabbed a handful of pills and I threw them down my throat and, you know, I've been on the verge of overdose before. This isn't, this wasn't a new situation for me, but I remember how distinctly different this felt. And I remember trying to stand up off of my couch and my entire right side cramped. Like I got stabbed in the, like stabbed in the kidney with a, a like a hot knife. And I, I buckled over to my right side. And as I did it, I got very dizzy and the black started to fade in from the periphery. And I, I can remember feeling like that was it. Like I was having the very last moment that I will ever have on this planet. And um, it was the most terrifying feeling. And I don't mean feeling, I mean like feeling, not physical. This was the worst feeling I've ever had. I've never been that scared in my life. And everything went black and it was like the universe just shut its door on me. It was almost as if it was requesting that I no longer be a part of it. And I woke up a few hours later in a puddle of my own vomit, in a pile of fast food garbage, um, alone in the dark. And I had this, once I had come to understand what had taken place and that I wasn't dead, I, I had this unbelievable experience and feeling of relief. And that relief was a profound moment for me because it asked me to consider with the truth of what had just taken place. The reason why I was feeling relieved is because there must be something about myself and my life that I loved enough. There has to be something about myself and my life that's meaningful enough that even though I knew today was going to be probably harder than any day I'd ever been through, I still wanted to be part of it all. And if that's the truth, then what suicide is for every person is not an attempt to end their life. It's an attempt to end their pain. And, you know, I was that person. I think about my friend David Clark, uh, and um, I remember him saying, uh, and he and I had talked about this before, how, you know, we would tell people, hey, you know what? This is my life. This is how I'm going to live my life. And if you don't like it, F you. You know, if it costs me five years, I'm fine with that. You know, um, five years? You know, we throw these numbers out there like they're nothing. And... You know, I think about what it means to, to spend a moment with somebody that you love. And, you know, if I had been successful that night, 
my family would probably give everything they have for five days. Five hours would have been huge. And I told myself that the things we choose to believe have consequences on us and the people that we care about. And so I picked up the phone and I called my parents and I asked for help and I checked into rehab. Where within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, drug-induced bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder, as well as obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. And I was put on a cabinet's worth of medication. It was like 15 medications. And these were lifelong medications. And I was a cliche walking into treatment. I mean, just so you guys know, I used after surviving suicide. Like I used in order to leave, couldn't do life without it. So I was high when I checked into treatment and I was under the full belief that I was going to do 28 days, get a break, and then I have a handle on things. And that sitting in that doctor's office was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it became painfully obvious that if I wasn't willing to change everything about the way that I moved through the world, I wasn't guaranteed five years and it sure wouldn't be from drugs that uh, that that idea of recovery had to be completely and radically different from what I thought it was. And I, you know, I, I told myself, you know what, I don't understand the psychology stuff. I don't understand the diabetes. I mean, I, I don't understand the, the, the bipolar or the suicidal depression or any of that stuff. But, you know, I had, I was almost like I was transported back to that. So seven days with rip. And all of a sudden, I had one doctor in front of me telling me, hey, you know what? You are diabetic. You are all these diagnoses. That's what you are. It's genetics. You're never going to get it's never you're never going to get off these medications. You're always going to have it. And at the same time, I had these unbelievably luminary thought leaders saying a completely different story. And their story was was one that said, hey, listen, the reason why you're suffering from these conditions is because these are a predictable response to an abnormal way of living. This is a reasonable response to what's been going on in your life. And if you want things to change, simply change your lifestyle. And I wanted to own that as how I was going to move through recovery and build a backbone of plant-based nutrition. And so when I left rehab, so they were not about to let a, a diabetic eat a high carbohydrate diet. They were not having it. Um, but I checked into a sober living facility where I would end up spending, this wasn't a plan, I was going, I ended up living there for 10 months. The, the, the original plan was to do 90 days, but I ended up staying there for 10 months. And at this facility, you tell the house manager everything that you want to eat. And then it's their job to go to the store and get it. They have a list. You write out the list. Everybody else in the house writes the list and then they go and they get it. And so uh, I walked up to the house manager whose last name is literally Hamburger and told him <laughs> I wanted him to get me oats and potatoes and beans and rice and all the, the things. And, and he did. And, you know, it was this, uh, I was getting up every morning and I was going in the kitchen and, and there would be what I asked them to buy. And right next to it would be fruity pebbles and Eggo waffles and all the things that I loved growing up. And, and it was, it was a, a, an interesting experience because here I am knowing the consequences of choosing the Fruity Pebbles, right? Knowing that it will continue to fuel the things I'm trying to reverse in my life and knowing very well that right next to it is the oatmeal that I asked for. And if I choose the oatmeal, it's going to help me to take charge of my health 
and my well-being, to start to create the positive change that I want to see in my life. So why in the world, knowing these two things, did I so desperately want the Fruity Pebbles to the point of crying? And why, I didn't understand why this couldn't just simply be a matter of intellect and will, why I couldn't just want to do it, know that this is the choice to make, and then boom, end of story. And then I happened to remember this TED Talk by Doug Lyle Mm -hmm. called The Pleasure Trap, which is a phenomenal TED Talk, and I recommend everybody's listening to go watch it. Essentially, what he tells you, talks about is the biological mechanisms that drive compulsion. How that any behavior that elicits a supernormal dopamine response, the body will perceive that response as an indication that you've just statistically increased your likelihood of gene survival, right? Your body essentially goes, <laughs> bravo. <laughs> I don't know what that was. We've never experienced a dopamine response like that, but that is 120 milligrams of Adderall. That must be the right thing to do. Anytime you have an opportunity to do it again, do it. So from a biological standpoint, when I was standing there, knowing what to do to start being happier and healthier and not wanting to do it wasn't because I was broken. It wasn't because I was weak or had no willpower. It was my body doing exactly what it was supposed to do given the environment that I had been living in for too long. And what it was asking me to do is simply be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to move in the direction that I want to go, hold those values and priorities that I set for myself front and center and be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to move in that direction. And it was interesting because I was having a lot of struggle with it because I was still viewing my body as an adversary, right? Every day of my life up to that point, and now at this point was still, how do I outcompete this body in order to win a battle on the scale, win a battle on the glucose meter? How do I outcompete this enemy that has never been my friend has never taken care of me. Mm. And I remember sitting there and I was talking to the house manager and the guy's name is Phil Hamburger. He's, a, he's an amazing <laughs> human. And he, um, he, he was just asking me questions. It was like he was guiding me towards this understanding where I thought about my suicide attempt and the surviving of it. And it, it asked me to consider what if, what if my body has always been my ally? What if that is the ultimate expression of my body never once giving up on me? What if my body has been trying my whole life to keep me alive and take care of me the best that it can, and I didn't know how to serve that partnership? What if everything I've been doing, doing my body, was just me believing some bullshit story about what it is to be happy and healthy by restriction and punishment? What if none of that shit is true? All of a sudden, everything shifted. Mm-hmm. Everything shifted. Food wasn't about restricting calories or restricting meat, eggs, and dairy. It was about choices that allowed me to be a caretaker for a body that has never given up on me. Allowed me to be a nurturing partner for a body that wants me to thrive and has been waiting forever for this moment to happen. And it was almost as if I could hear every single cell of my, be- my body say with just this immense relief, We've been waiting your whole life for this. Now watch what can happen. And in four months, I completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, my erectile dysfunction. Within 10 months, I lost over 100 pounds. Within a year, I was off of every single medication I was put on rehab, the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, all of it. Um, I'm going to be celebrating nine years of continued sobriety um, in October. 
And, uh, you know, I, I think about this journey and what it means and the story that we have about addiction recovery. And I look at, you know, the way that people are treated in addiction recovery. And it's all about abstinence and avoidance of substance. Mm. And to the point to where food is an afterthought. And I look at my journey and I saw how I made food a very important and integral part of healing my relationship with myself and fueling a body to recover from damage done by substance abuse and repair neural pathways. And I was like, this has got to, there's got to be something about this written somewhere. There's got to be a study about this. And there's never been a single controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on addiction recovery ever. Until? And, until, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's when I, I, I decided that, you know, hey, this, maybe this is, maybe this is my, my purpose for now is to create this, you know, uh, research. And so that's what, that's what I ended up doing. I ended up starting a nonprofit. This would be about five or six years later. Um, because I went back to school, I studied nutrition. I started working in a clinical setting at Whole Foods Market Global. Um, then I joined the Mastering Diabetes team with my two best friends, Robbie and Cyrus. Um, I'd been a speaker for Rip Esselstyn for about six years at this point. And so I'd been able to develop the relationships and the knowledge necessary to put this together. And I founded a nonprofit that is now leading the very first controlled trial to investigate the effects of diet on early addiction recovery outcomes. It's all of the participant part is completely finished. Like literally yesterday, I got the microbiome data back. Um, and so we're going to be publishing the results this summer. Excellent. We're incredibly excited about it. And I love, you know, I think that um, what we're going to do is we're going to add a piece, a very important piece to the puzzle of substance abuse recovery, because food is a very controlled aspect of recovery. And it's one that has never been investigated. And I think that's a big big mistake. So that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and so I, luckily we're going to have, have some time for a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, there's so much in there, like so many things kept coming into my head. And then I was just coming back to your voice as you were guiding us through the story. But I think a big thing as a coach and you as a coach now is this idea of planting seeds, right? And mm. so perhaps this this podcast will plant a seed. Like you are the example of having seeds planted. You weren't ready to water those seeds no. or anything, but they didn't go anywhere. And so right. here you are potentially even getting stuck in a deeper spiral of here are all the medications that you're going to be on for the rest of your life. But you're like, well, hold on a second, because you've got all of these seeds that have been planted and they're there. And then you start watering them. And as we saw, your transformation and what you went through in 10 months is phenomenal. Not yeah. surprising, right? Like <laughs> living a plant-based lifestyle and and you experiencing what you experienced. And, if, and I'm sure you're seeing through the data and information that you're getting from the Infinite Study the change that you had was so massive, but I, I think that it is credit to the body and its inherent wisdom to organize towards health. It's always yeah. organizing towards health. And I love your perspective on body. You know, in our community is mostly athletes. And it's probably not a surprise that within this community, there are a lot of opportunities in relationships with food, right? So food 
being the drug, food being the punishment, food being the um, the thing that they can control. And yeah. uh, and I've been there, and I I've hated my body, and I've said awful things to it. And I remember hearing you talk about how you like punched yourself. Man, I totally yeah. have done that. And your yeah. body is just there going, okay, well, I'll heal that bruise. Okay, well, I'll fight these mm-hmm. cancer cells. Okay, well, I'll, I'll raise my blood sugar to let you know that something's going on here. Um, and I'm sure that this relationship to the body is a big thing that you come up with in your coaching. Yeah. How do you begin to guide people into this understanding that their body does love them and that it's brilliant, yeah. brilliant survivor? That's you know, that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? Is, you know, I tell people, look, number first and foremost, a lot of the people that I coach are diabetic, right? That's a, the majority of my coaching is within mastering diabetes. So we help people with their insulin resistance, gaining more insulin sensitivity over the course of time. But I'll tell them, I said, listen, listen, I know you think you're here because you have diabetes and that's not why you're, you're joining coaching program. Nobody joins mastering diabetes because they have diabetes. Right? Nobody on this planet is motivated by negative consequences. I think that what is amazing about negative consequences is that they highlight meaningful and loving bonds in your life that are being threatened. And it is those loving and meaningful bonds that we do anything in this life. That's why we do what we do, why we learn to do it better, why we gain more knowledge, so that we can have a greater, more authentic, and more deep in a, in a deeper connection to the meaningful bonds in life that give us the experience of being alive. And I think that there's four of them. And I've, there's an amazing book that I highly recommend everybody read. It's called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Um, he's a phenomenal journalist who went around the world and, and investigated and, 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 uh, and talked to the, the, the leading authorities on anxiety and depression and uh, the, the surprising solutions, the, the actual causes and surprising solutions. And there's about four meaningful bonds in life, in my opinion. One is a loving and meaningful bond with yourself, both physically and emotionally, that you want to show up and be present for every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with people in your life that you want to share value with and who want to share their value with you that you want to show up and be present for every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with a purpose beyond yourself within a community of shared respect that you want to show up and be present for every single day. And a loving and meaningful bond with a future that feels safe and is achievable that you want to show up and be present for every single day. Now, when those bonds are severed by any means, trauma, disease, whatever it is, the, the, the loss of those bonds is painful and the body will send you a signal. It'll look like depression. It'll look like anxiety. And it is. But what we have to stop doing is thinking of depression, and anxiety as only pathology rather a reasonable response to an abnormal way of living. And I love what he says that depression, what if depression is your body's form of grief for your life not being lived as it should? And I tell people that the reason why they join coaching is because diabetes is threatening those meaningful bonds. And one of those bonds is a loving and meaningful bond with yourself, both physically and emotionally. So we have to heal that bond. We have to connect to it. And the best way that I know how to do that is to take on a caretaker role, is to become the caretaker of your body rather than a competitor against it. Mm-hmm. And this is a hard thing to do because most people in Western culture have been told, we've been sold the, the biggest loser story, right? That you've got to restrict calories. 
You've got to punish with exercise. Everything is an assault on the self, both physically and emotionally. It's like, you know, you got to get to the pain. You got to do all the things, you know, and it's like, well, where's the track record that shows that is successful? In fact, we know abstinence-based programs have a miserable track record, and I believe it's for a very, very specific reason. Abstinence-based programs, whether it's food, sex, drugs, gambling, whatever it is, they're all the same. Like I mentioned before, addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life has become too painful a place to be. So the behavior is a solution to a a pain you cannot understand. It was a very slow, slight, and imperceptible shift into this pain, and the fog of it is too difficult to see the way out. And so the abstinence-based program says your problem is your substance. Your problem is the food or the gambling or the sex or the shopping or whatever it is. And so what we need you to do in order to be successful is, one, identify yourself as broken. You are an addict. That's what you are and you always will be. And it, honestly, if I could remove one sentence from the, from the verbal uh, dialogue of humanity, it's the sentence, once an addict, always an addict. I would, it, I would give everything in, that I own for the rest of my life to rid that sentence of our mind and our memory. Identify as an addict, identify as broken, identify as not being able to control yourself around these substances, find a group of people that you can reaffirm this truth to yourself every single day, and then abstain from these substances for as long as you possibly can. And if you relapse, it's proof that you're not strong enough, your program isn't strong enough, and you have more work to do. Here's the problem with that bullshit idea. Human beings are inherently imperfect, and it's wonderful that we are. How can we feel safe embodying a lifestyle where anything less than perfect is considered a failure? It doesn't work. There is too much context that is lost from the content of abstinence, right? Imagine a story where a person has been an alcoholic for 10 years. They were drinking to the point where they were damaging their lives. 10 years of daily, unbelievable use. And then they check into treatment. They have a year sober, right? right? They have a year in recovery. And then all of a sudden, something incredibly tragic happens to them that tests their emotional resolve to a point yet tested while in this next stage of their life of practicing recovery. And it's really difficult. And they find themselves at a bar. And the next thing they know, they find themselves ordering a drink and they look at it. And they even take a sip of this drink, maybe one or two. And then they put it down and they go, hang on a minute. I don't want to do this. This isn't how I want to do this. I actually want to be present with this feeling because this feeling matters. I'm going to go. The bartender says, do you you sure you don't want to finish this drink? He says, I don't need it. He walks off. Now, the AA model would say that's a failure. I would say that's the recovery winning. Even if they drank the whole drink. And the next day said, you know what? I can do better and it's okay. What happened happened. I'm not a failure. This is new for me. That's the recovery winning. We create this idea of shame around recovery because in order to enter recovery, you have to identify yourself as different than others. So much of the stigma about substance abuse actually exists because of the recovery model that we use. And I don't care if that pisses people off, okay? I really don't. <laughs> My cat just fell <laughs> Your cat's pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> but I really believe that. And so when I talk to somebody who's using food, I say, all right, why does it make sense that you're doing this? Number one, why does the craving, the temptation arise? 
Number two, why does it make sense that you feel like you want to do this in order to not feel what you're feeling? And then number three, how would your highest self respond if given the opportunity? Oh my gosh, I ask that all the time. Like, what does my big self say about this? Were you going to say, Beach? Right. How, do you, how do you get, when you ask them those questions, because that's pretty powerful, and it's probably yeah. something they're not used to because they're numbing out. They they're don't not. want to be an active participant in the conversation you're having with them. Do you see like they're... Do you see them struggling for well, the answer? Or, or, okay. Of course they do, and that you know that's part of the that's part of the system that we believe is that you have to get it right. You have to get it, or you're not going to get it right. And it's like, no, this this is not something that you get. It's something that you learn on your own journey, right? Like I think about the 1969 Apollo 11 mission to the moon. Right, this is probably the greatest feat in human history, if not the number one. It's way up there. Okay, we took humans from Earth, and then we safely landed them on the moon in 1969. Okay. Now a feat like that, you must believe that they had it all figured out. They knew exactly what to do and how to go and everything. Do you know what percentage of the flight time they were actually on track to the moon? Mm-mm. It's 2%. 2% of the time they were actually on course. 98% of the time they were making course corrections, which means 98% of the time they spent figuring it out. This is the greatest journey, one of the greatest missions in human history. Lifestyle change is the same, that you figure it out on the journey. In fact, the beginning of any lifestyle change is the willingness to have faith in yourself, to know that taking the first step is what allows the next step to be visible. You don't need to see the rest of the entire journey. In fact, it's impossible. You've never walked this path. Don't create an expectation of how things should unfold. Don't create checkpoints. Just look at the road, part of the road that you can see. Know what you know now and put faith in yourself that you're going to figure it out through support of others and the opportunity to learn more on your own. And it's going to, you're going to require course corrections, but it's okay. Right? These are, it's not trial and error. It's trial and learning. And so I give people... I give people permission to make mistakes. I give people permission to, re- to quote unquote relapse mm-hmm. because if, 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 they're, if they're honest about it and they see all food is okay, right? There's, there's not good food or bad food. There's not unhealthy food. There's not healthy food. There's not right food. And there's not wrong food. There's just food. And then there's your values and your priorities. And either the choice is either aligned or it isn't. <laughs> and if it's aligned, Align with your values and who you are and your identity and what you want to embody, you go that direction. If it's not, it's okay. It doesn't make it something that's evil or going to harm you, right? And doing it doesn't take you off course too far. You can always re, re, you know, redirect yourself. It's about understanding what you want most for yourself and then being very clear that everything is on the table and you still have priorities that dictate the direction that you want to go. Yeah, and I love the story about like the guy that walks into the bar and how you you consider that to be a victory. I would as well, and why? I would consider that a victory because there's consciousness there. There's present yeah. moment awareness there, and you're giving people yeah. the opportunity to be truthful, like you said, to be honest, to be truthful. And the thing that yeah. I found about... Tr- and not shameful. Yes, and the thing that I found about yes. truth... You don't have to hide from truth. Truth is so fluid. Yeah, it's freeing. It's freeing. Yeah. It's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, we, we, there's nothing to hide. Um, yeah. And there's that great uh, Buddhist quote, the Buddhist quote that says, just as we know the oceans because they taste of salt, we know truth because it tastes of freedom. Yeah. 
Mm. Exactly. And that's a, that's yeah. a, it's a guideline for living in the practice of yoga is satya, which is truthfulness. But the one that precedes it, which you really need as well, is ahimsa, which is nonviolence. Mm. And so when yeah. you were going through, you know, your dark night of the soul, which was for many, many yeah. years, and you're treating your family like crap, and you're living like a hoarder, and you're abusing your body, mm. and, you know, you're just literally abusing yourself physically, your heart's constricted. It's locked up. And so self-love is opening and it's relaxing. And do you remember a time in your story where you started to feel that shift where you're like, oh boy, here it is. It's beginning to open. Uh, You know, it was probably around the six month mark. You know, um, that's when I, I felt like I stopped doing this lifestyle and I was, and I was being this lifestyle. It wasn't something I was doing it was something that I was right. And, um, it's also about the time that I started to look at, um, veganism as an embodiment of ethics mm. rather than just me eating plants for my health, which I'll be I'll, straight up honest. Like I did this for very selfish reasons and I don't think being selfish is inherently a bad thing, mm. but I did it for my health. And then I ended up seeing with open eyes and non-bias the truth of the rest of the spectrum of what it means to act in this way, right? How I could not only recapture my life, but also honestly be kind to non-human animals that I share this world with. And when I can unconditionally love other things, right? because before I was an animal lover, and I was. And I don't fault people who eat meat who say they love animals. I really think they do. In fact, I know they do. I know they love animals. But when I was able to stop eating animals and love them, there was a condition that was removed. Hmm. And once I was able to unconditionally love more things, I was able to see what unconditionally love, unconditional love really feels like. And then I was able to place that back on myself. It's the same thing. One of the things I have people do within the coaching program is I have them write the reality as it exists. And what I mean by that is when they think about their bodies, how do they feel? Mm. When they think about their health and food, how do they feel? When they think about their future and meaning, how do they feel? And then what I ask them to do is I say, I want you to look at those responses and I want you to reply to those responses as if it was written by your best friend. Okay, because we typically have a voice that we speak to ourselves in a very critical and judgmental voice. It's okay. That's human nature. However, we do have another unconditional loving voice that is a loving and nurturing voice. And we typically direct it outward. I think about the people that you love the most who came to you and said, I'm struggling. and I'm too stupid to do this. I can't get it. I'm I'm just, I'm fat. I'm always going to be fat or I'm sick. I'm always going to be sick. They're saying all these things to themselves. How would you respond to that person? That voice would probably be unconditional acceptance and love and unconditional support and guidance. What if we were to redirect that voice back to ourselves? And every time we have a moment where it's hard, where we catch ourselves judging ourselves and giving ourselves a negative critic, this inner critic voice, what if we learn the ability to turn that voice to that you know, loving and nurturing voice so that we see that there's always two potential ways to view the situation and how we can start to love and care for our feelings because we own too much, Right. We own these things. I am sad. I am angry. I am depressed. I am anxious instead of I feel sad, right? I feel a lack of connection to other people today. Instead of I am stupid, I feel 
a lack of confidence in what I'm doing right now. Instead of I am ugly, I feel a lack of confidence in my body right now. When it's a feeling, then it's an observation, right? And when it's an observation, then it's something that you can look at with compassion, with love, and say, okay, this is a moment in time that is fleeting just as the moment before when I wasn't experiencing this feeling. And what does that mean? It's temporary. It's uh, and it also it also yeah. says you've got a choice, right? When you say I am, it's kind of like permanent. You kind of feel permanent. Like this is yeah. the way I. Well, it's I who am. you are, right? Yeah, it's like a, I yeah. I am anxious. Like I I am anxious. No, I'm feeling anxious. Yeah. And you then know? the next minute, you can shift that with the power of presence and awareness that you're not your thoughts. That you can. Oh well, I was anxious, and now I feel, you know, calm. And that's a powerful yeah. and- piece. And then you also get to see, like I like to tell people, is that feelings don't arise for no reason. Right? You get to see why it makes sense that you feel that way. Right? What is it in the environment? What is it that's going on in your life that is a reasonable response to feel this way? Because again, like when we don't own it, I want to. We want to understand. We want to be curious about the the rising of these or the rising of these feelings. The more curious you are, the greater the opportunity to understand more. And so be curious, why, what causes this temptation? What causes this feeling? Why does it make sense? And then, the, of course, how would the highest self respond? And it's okay to not get it right. It's okay to go back and say, shit, I wish I'd done it this way. Next time I will. That's okay. Yeah. I'm Because okay. if we don't know, if we don't know the quote unquote wrong way, how are we ever going to direct mm-hmm. ourselves to the quote unquote right way? Right. And I'm just using those yeah, words and, for the lack of better words, but we have to experience right, like, the contrast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's been amazing. And you know, my biggest mission right now is honestly is just to help redefine um, recovery, addiction recovery. Cause I think that, you know, <laughs> we have an unbelievably flawed system that treats dependency and not addiction. Um, people think dependency is addiction, which is why people think that humans are born addicted. There's not a single child born from an addicted parent who's addicted. They're born dependent. It's a very different thing. And the same thing that a lot of people experience, your, your dependency is not what needs to be treated. It's the addiction that needs to be treated. And that addiction is more than likely rooted in some kind of pain that makes sense, right? And as a result of not, and as a result of the dependency model, we've created these unbelievably damaging stigmas, right? And I, I say this all the time because it's important. Um, addicts are not criminals; they're humans in pain. Suicidal people are not crazy; they're humans in pain. Depressed people are not sick; they are humans in pain. And maybe if we stop defining them by what they struggle with, it would be easier for us to listen to their needs, and maybe we would see that their pain makes sense. We will see that these are humans that are desperately trying to reconnect to a meaningful life. And usually the first step at helping them connect to that life is simply another human willing to listen to them. Yeah. A question I ask a lot if I'm in anger or, you know, and that's the thing is like, you're still going to feel anger. I'm still going to feel, you know, cranky. I'm still going to feel fear. But the, a question mm-hmm. I ask, which is right up there with what does my high self think of this is what is the loving story? And I think that that's what mm. you're bringing to this. What is the loving story behind your pain? Because there is love underneath yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, ha- it's, ha- it's having that compassion for others. I, I loved your um, you know, unconditional love and how, how far do you want to take unconditional love? You know, I, I was talking about 
coming, you know, speeding down a hill on my bike and motorcycles were zooming by me and they're all frustrated and their, you know, their arms are up and like, can I have yeah. unconditional love for someone who wants to, you know, isn't aware that there's a cyclist yeah. coming down and on the side of the road and it can get a little sketchy. So like, how far can you take this unconditional love? And I, I think if it can't be taken far enough because that's, I think we're at that state right. in this world where, yeah, we can have unconditional mm-hmm. love for ourselves, but what are these experiences around us that are igniting this fear and animosity and, and the yeah. triggers that say, okay, well, I'm going to categorize you as depressed. So this is what I'm going to give you as your label. And I don't have to deal yeah. with you versus like, yeah, unconditional love. you know, you know, something is, is, is not in alignment with your core self, your core values, if it requires any kind of justification. Hmm. If there's any kind of justification required, it's not aligned. You never have to justify kindness. You never have to justify a loving act. You never have to justify compassion. The only time justification is required if it's going against who you truly are and how you truly want to be in this world. And so one of the things I've told myself, and this is actually my brother's quote, because my twin brother, Bobby, who also reversed his diabetes and lost 100 pounds, um, is a very passionate vegan activist and um, uh, animal rights filmmaker and photographer. He works with Sean Munson, the director of Earthlings. And um, he, he has this quote, uh, and I think it's one of the best quotes I've ever heard. Uh, he said, uh, if for no other reason, be kind simply because it's humanly possible to do so. Mm. That's beautiful. That's it. That's beautiful. You don't, there's no, you don't need mm-hmm. to justify it for anything. No. Yeah. And it's, it's who, I believe it's who we truly are. You know, I believe that underneath yeah. everything there is a loving story and under that loving story is love. Um, yeah. And I love your message and I love what you're doing. <laughs> and I know our audience is going to be like, what? Like they're cutting it off now, but <laughs> yeah. I, we know you have a, um, we, we know you have well, a call. Well, we can do a second, we can do a second take. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to leave them wanting more. Well, what is one, yeah, if, we'll leave if we can leave them with just one, somebody's hearing this and they're like, oh my God, I want to, I want to like yeah. change something. Like, oh, I love what he's saying. Like, I want to change my diet mm-hmm. too. And I don't have diabetes, but I want to yeah. make change. What's, what's one thing yeah. they can start doing? What's one simple thing? Yeah. I know this is a, the the number one thing you can do is always it there it's just eat more plants right eat more plants from a and do it from a place of love and acceptance right see them as not competition for whatever you're trying to get rid of but rather as a way of partnering with a body so it can reinforce the things that are amazing self love and loving your body is not about loving what it looks like it's about loving what it does for you right? More so than what it looks like, loving your body is loving what it does for you. And so the choices that you make around fueling your body are usually best when they reinforce what you love about what your body does for you, right? So one of the things I'm really into now is weight training and, you know, muscle building and stuff. So I make choices that reinforce the amazing exploration of what my body is physically capable of showing up and doing for me. Right? Then it's not me restricting anything else. It's a choice to choose these foods, to partner with my body so it can continue to be like, oh, you think that's all I got, bro? Check this out. Thanks for that choice. I really appreciate it. Now watch this. Right? And so come at, from, come at your choices from that standpoint of how do I partner with my body so that it can do the healing, right? Because that's the thing is we're, we're the traveler inside of the vessel. Right, the vessel's doing the healing. We need to we need to fuel this vessel with what it what it thrives on. And look, end of story, this vessel thrives on plants. 
you look at you look at the studies, epidemiology, randomized controlled trials, observational studies. It doesn't matter where it's taking place, and it doesn't matter if it's high fat, low fat, high carb, low carb, high protein, low protein. The plant predominant diet wins every time. Now that's plant predominant, right? I wish I could say that a plant only diet is the winner, but as far as we know right now. It's the plant predominant diet, which means 90% plants are greater. I wish what it was is what I want it to be, but what it is is actually a plant predominant diet. However, there's no loss in going fully plant-based if you want to. Just I'm, I'm a person who says this is what the research says and, and that's what it says. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's well, and we're just releasing the audio here, but you are looking pretty buff, dude. and we will leave (laughs) you are Um, so thank you so much Adam we are going to leave the audience with wanting more and we're going to take you up on that uh, offer to come back on the show sometime so thank you so much we'll talk specifically about the study yeah I was just thinking that you're reading my mind All right, awesome man take good care thank you All right. see ya take care 